verses 1 through 8. Before we get to our text this morning, I was, I relived uh, a memory of when I lived in Kansas. I've shared that when I was uh, uh, a little boy, uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, we lived in Kansas in a small town in central Kansas. And one day I decided to run away from home. Now, kids, I don't recommend it, so don't say, hey, Pastor John said I could run away from home. Um, I don't remember being uh, upset or anything. I think I had just finished reading Huck Finn and thought it was a good thing to want to kind of get away and be on my own and do my own thing. And so I remember um, packing up my backpack, putting all the things that I thought I needed to survive, you know, on my own, putting my backpack on, getting on my bike. And like I said, we lived in a small town, so I would ride my bike everywhere. I mean, I rode my bike to school. I rode my bike to the lake, to fish, to swim. I rode my bike to my friend's house. I, I rode my bike everywhere. And so I just hopped on my bike and I rode. And I don't remember exactly where I went, um, but I remember, you know, biking outside of town a little bit, you know, finding a, you know, kind of deserted place. Um, and I remember being there and suddenly thinking to myself, what am I doing? Like, I, how am I going to survive out here? I, I, you know, no survival skills. Um, I, how am I going to eat? How am I going to do all these things? And so I, you know, packed up my backpack again, went, went home. And my parents probably don't even re- didn't even realize I was gone. I, I don't think I was gone for that long. And so, you know, I was running away because I, I thought it was a, be a cool thing to do. But sometimes we run away for other reasons, right? Um, have you ever felt like running away, either literally or maybe emotionally? Have you ever felt the need to leave home? You know, some of you brothers and sisters have left uh, a home, have left your culture, have left your family to come here to the United States. Others of you grew up in this country but have moved thousands of miles to come to be here for whatever reason, have left home and family in other parts of this country. Still others of you may know from experience what it's like to run away from God, to leave the family of God. And this morning, we find someone who's running away. We find the great prophet Elijah. And I say great because he was thought of to be the greatest prophet after Moses. The great prophet Elijah is running away from his homeland, running away from danger, leaving family, leaving friends. But he was ultimately running away from God. You see, in, in ancient Israel, God's... The promised land was where God resided. God's people resided in God's place. And in Scripture, when anyone leaves God's place, they are leaving God's presence in a way. They are running away from God. They are getting out of where God has chosen to commune with his people. Right? Before the temple was built, where the Um, where the tabernacle was. This place was where God communed with his people, where God was. And And Elijah is running away 
not only from his homeland, from danger, from leaving friends and family, but he's ultimately running away from God. So let's read 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Ahab, who was the king at the time, told Jezebel, who was the queen, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets by the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Basically, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow, Elijah. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to not only be transformed by your word, but conformed to it that our lives would reflect the glory and the beauty and the hope and the love of you, Lord God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we began our Advent series that we titled Going Nowhere. And we said that for most, if not all, these past 20 months, it has felt like a lot of going nowhere. We just kind of keep going around and around and around in circles we keep having the same kind of conversations. We keep having the same kind of, you know, oh, it's getting better. Oh, it's not. Oh, it's getting better. Oh, it's not. You know, it's kind of the same type of thing over and over again. For others of us, there may be other circumstances in our lives. Job, health. Maybe there's some relationships. All these things that seem like they're going nowhere. And in the midst of this feeling that we're going nowhere, we may sometimes wonder where God is, or maybe even if he's even there. We may feel like we're in the wilderness, either literally or figuratively, emotionally, wandering and then wondering if there's hope, if the promises are true. And as I said last week, this Advent series will be looking at several people from the Bible who find themselves pretty much literally going nowhere. 
who find themselves in the literal wilderness or an emotional wilderness and find themselves in those moments in the presence of God who has come to them and has promised that he has come to us. And not only that, but that he is with us always until he comes again. And last week, just to remind you, we met Abram and Sarai, or who become Abraham and Sarah, and their maidservant, Hagar. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, God had promised Abram that he would be the father of a great nation, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands and the seashore. But it had been 10 years since God made this promise to Abram. And in those 10 years, he and Sarah had no children. They had not had children before. They still had no children. And Sarah was barren. And so Sarah, Sarah had a plan to give Hagar, her maidservant, to Abram as a wife, as a surrogate. And we said that, that was, in that time, that was culturally acceptable. It was something that was looked upon as something that was okay, fine to do. Actually, it was encouraged in many uh, cultures around but it was not acceptable to God, and it was not his plan. And we saw that like Abram and Sarai, we often try to find a shortcut to God's plan, to God's will. And because of this shortcut, Hagar finds herself being despised and abused by Sarai, and she flees into the wilderness, likely on her way back to Egypt where she's from. But God sees her in her distress. And we saw last week that the God of promise is the God who sees, who sees our need, who sees our sorrow. And when he sees us, he comes to us. And this morning, we find ourselves in the wilderness again. And what's interesting is that we find ourselves in the same wilderness the same wilderness that Hagar fled to is the same wilderness that Elijah fled to. We read in our text that he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there, his, uh, his servant who was the kind of an assistant prophet. <laughs> he left him there in Beersheba. And Beersheba is almost 100% where Abram and Sarai had set their tents up, had, had been living when Hagar fled from them. And she fled into the very wilderness that we see Elijah fleeing into. But before we come to the wilderness, we need a little bit of background. We need a little bit of background because this context matters. And we didn't read the whole passage because it would have taken, you know, the whole time this morning. But Elijah has just kind of, he's come from kind of a uh, an ancient version of a cage match, right? He's come from this battle royale between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God. And this, this uh, battle was kind of a test, right, to see who the true God was. And they set up a kind of a competition, right, between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the prophet of the true God. And they built altars and they they sacrificed animals and put them on the altars. And they said, whichever God sends fire to consume the sacrifice is the true God. 
And so Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. And as they are praying and doing all kinds of things to get Baal to send fire, Elijah starts making fun of them because fire is not coming. And Elijah says, you know, uh, may, maybe he's asleep, right? Um, maybe he's on a long journey. Uh, or my favorite, maybe he's relieving himself, right? <laughs> he's in the toilet, you know? Um, Elijah lets them go through this. They, they get to the point where they're so, uh, so passion, impassioned to try to get Baal to hear them that they start cutting themselves and start bleeding all over the place. And yet Baal does not send fire. And so Elijah then takes lots of water, four jars that were used for purification, large jars, and dumps them all over this altar. He digs a trench around it so that the water will fill up this trench around the altar, and he makes sure the wood is good and wet, that it'd be impossible for any natural kind of fire to burn this altar, to burn the, the sacrifice. And so Elijah prays, and not only does fire come down from heaven and consume the sacrifice, but it consumes the rocks that the altar was built up. It consumes the dirt that the rocks were placed upon. It, scriptures, it licks up the water that was in this basin around the altar. And the prophets of Baal are defeated. And the true God has once again made himself known in Israel. Elijah has just literally had what we tend to call a mountaintop experience with God. Right? He was on a mountain in the sacrifice you know, competition, and God has shown up beyond even what Elijah had expected. Right? All God had to do was just burn the sacrifice, send fire and burn the sacrifice, and that was the proof. And God was like, and I'm going to burn the sacrifice, I'm going to burn the wood, I'm going to burn the stones, I'm going to burn the, the dust, and I'm going to lick up the water with this fire. He has just literally experienced a mountaintop experience. So why do we find him running into the wilderness? He's just seen God act in an incredibly powerful way. The prophets of Baal have been destroyed at, by his sword. And yet, he's fearful for his life. I don't know about you. Sometimes when we read stories in the Bible, we're like, oh, come on. Man, what in the world? But we're the same way right? It's the same thing. We're just like Elijah. When faced with adversity or hardship or suffering or sorrow, we do the same thing. We easily forget who God is and what he has done. We can easily forget who God is and what he has done, right? If anything could have, should have encouraged Elijah and carried him through these circumstances, surely seeing and experiencing God act in such a mighty, powerful way 
would surely do it. But what happens instead? Elijah is afraid and depressed. He's afraid and depressed. And look, I mean, it's a a real thing that he's afraid of, right? He's afraid that Jezebel is going to make good on her threat. She's the queen. She has power. She was an evil, evil queen. So it's not displaced fear. And when he, we see later in the passage when he talks to God, there there are things to be depressed about. His depression is legitimate. Israel's apostatized. He's running for his life. He believes he's the only God worshiper left. His depression is legitimate. Depression is for all kinds of different reasons. I'm not saying that there's no illegitimate kinds of depression, but his depress it's not like he was like just kind of like, oh, you know, woe is me. And I, you know, this is something where we see that Elijah's afraid and he's depressed, and it's totally reasonable for him to be. But we see in our passage, the main point is the God of faithfulness is the one who meets us in our need. The God of faithfulness is the one who meets us in our need when we run and when we have no hope. First, when we run, verses one through four, right? I mean, it literally says that Elijah, then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life. In three short verses, everything has changed. Right? In three short verses, the flow of the story has changed. Victory seems to be transformed into defeat. The brave prophet into a cowering refugee. And the victory over death and Baal into an opportunity for death to reassert itself through Jezebel's oath to take Elijah's life and through Elijah's own desire to die. Life seemed to be going so well. Everything was, was going according to plan. I mean, God had shown himself again in Israel. Everyone should just automatically turn and praise and worship the true God, and Elijah should be carried off on the shoulders of everybody, and everybody should be praising and thanking him for bringing God back to the people. And then, bam, Elijah runs. Fight or flight, and he chooses flight. Flight is not always bad. We kind of think of fight or flight. We're like, oh, yeah, we need to fight. Okay, sometimes, yes, you do. Sometimes you need to flight. Fight or flight isn't bad. But here's the thing. He chooses flight away from God, 
right? He chooses flight. He chooses to flee from God instead of fleeing to God. He flees to the wilderness, to solitude, to isolation, to death, instead of fleeing to the one who can give him protection, hope, strength. Right? He flees away from the care and protection and love of God. He flees away. He runs away away. But here's the thing, and we need to hear this loud and clear, because oftentimes we believe the lie that when we flee, God doesn't want to have anything to do with us, right? When we run away, God doesn't want to have anything to do with us. The right response is to run to God, to flee to him. But even in our wrong response, God pursues us and comes to us. He finds us in the wilderness. Even though Elijah should have known better, right? If you want to say it that way, and run to God. He does what he knows is not right and runs away to the wilderness, and yet God comes to him and finds him. And so if you've been running and find yourself in the wilderness, and you might think that God is not there, let me remind you that God is there. He's pursuing you. He is with you. He has come to you in your time of trouble. He comes to us when we have no hope, our second point. Elijah says he wants to die which ironically is kind of the opposite reason of why he's actually in the wilderness in the first place, right? He flees because he wants to get away from dying, (laughs) right? He flees because he wants to escape certain death, and now he's found himself in the wilderness, and now he wants to die. And now God begins to renew his faith by miraculously feeding him. God comes and ministers to him just like he's done in the past, Right? This isn't the first time that Elijah has been miraculously fed by God. If you might remember the story of Elijah, he is by the brook Cherith, and God sent the ravens to feed him with bread and meat. And once God had, you know, had sustained him there, he sends him and he finds a widow who, is, who God says will feed him and, and care for him. And he goes, he finds this widow, and the widow you know, says, uh, well, all I have left is enough flour and oil for my son and I to eat and die. And Elijah says that God has said that if, if she trusts, he will provide. If she trusts in feeding him, 
God will provide, and they miraculously have enough flour and oil to sustain them until the famine is over. He ministers to him as he has in the past. And the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah. And I'm not going to go into it uh, real deep, but last week, if you want to go back and listen or watch, you can find, hear more about this angel of the Lord. We'll be seeing this throughout our series, see, seeing him throughout our series. The angel of the Lord comes to Elijah. And from the time of the early church fathers, the angel of the Lord was seen as the figure of the preexistent word of God, the pre-incarnate Son of God, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity functioning in the Old Testament. He comes to Elijah and ministers to him by making him breakfast, right? He makes him breakfast. And it reminds us of when Jesus comes to his disciples who are somewhat in the emotional wilderness after his resurrection, not knowing what exactly is going on. And he comes and he makes breakfast on the Sea of Galilee and he invites his disciples to come and he particularly invites Peter who has denied him, betrayed him, who is feeling like he is far from God. And he invites him to eat the breakfast that he has prepared. And he reminds him of his great love for Peter. He reminds him of his great care for Peter. And he reminds Peter that Peter loves him. He feeds Elijah and says, Arise and eat. They're the only words recorded, and yet these are the words of life that Elijah needs in that moment. Arise and eat, Elijah. And once he has strength, Elijah heads to Horeb, the mount of God. And it's interesting to see that, right? He leaves the place of God, the, the promised land, the nation of God. He leaves the place of God. He goes into the wilderness fleeing from God and now he has been met by God, has been sustained by God, has been fed by God, has been encouraged by God and now he's going to the mountain of God. He's fleeing back to God. This mount of God we will come into contact with next week when we look at the life of Moses in the wilderness. Mount Horeb, we might know as Mount Sinai, where God gave, where God first meets Moses and then gives the people of Israel the Ten Commandments. And God comes to Elijah there on the mountain and asks him why he has fled. And as I said, he had reasons to be depressed. Israel rejected the covenant. Israel had become idolatrous. He was the only prophet left in Jezebel's plan to kill him. And implied in Elijah's response is the doubts that God can save him and turn the nation back. Who has God become in the prophet's life? So God once again reminds him of who he is. Only a restatement and reassessment 
of who God is can bring him out from this pit of fear and despair. And the Lord reassures Elijah with the most certain comfort, his own word, which never fails. Right? He invites the prophet Elijah to stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. And when God passes by, there's a great earthquake and a great fire and a great wind. And yet God was not in the fire or the wind or the earthquake. Elijah has experienced God's sovereignty over nature. As I mentioned, the ravens feeding him, the fire coming down from heaven to, to consume the altar. He has benefited from these things. But what he needs now more than ever is a definitive word from the Lord. And he receives the word in a gentle whisper. I am here. I am with you. You see, the one who came to Elijah in his need is the one who has come to know our need. The one who came to Elijah in his need is the one who has come to know our need. I don't know if you saw the, um, the quote uh, in our worship meditation this morning from St. Augustine. But he said this, Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be uh, tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak and the healer might be wounded, that life might die. The one who came to meet Elijah's need is the one who's come to know our need. And not only does he meet us in our need, but he intimately and personally knows what it is to be in need. He intimately and personally knows what it is to be human. He intimately knows and personally understands what it is to be frail and weak. He intimately knows what it is to hunger and thirst to know rejection, to know betrayal, to know how his soul is cast down. And having experienced all of our need, Jesus came to know our need, to meet us in our need, and to ultimately provide for our need. Right? It isn't just some existential knowledge that Jesus has as the ruler and maker of the universe which frankly would have been enough. <laughs> but he intimately and personally has come to know our need, to meet us in our need, and to ultimately provide for our need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus the one who has come to know our need. To know rejection, to know hunger and thirst, to know betrayal, to know what it's like for our souls to be cast down within us. 
He has experienced all that. And he meets us in our need and ultimately provides for our need. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, we would know this truth more and more. We'd be united by your spirit in knowing that Jesus knows us. And he meets us right where we're at. Lord, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.